social ladies. All the 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 social ladies. Now put your phones up. Welcome to All the Social Ladies with CEO of Likeable Media, Carrie Kerpin. Because if you're social, then you really should be tweeting less. If you're social, then you really could be leading less. You can't have what people say it's so mysterious. Because you're social, you're a leader and you're serious. Now, Carrie Kerpin. Hi, and welcome back to All the Social Ladies. I am Carrie Kirpin, CEO of Likeable Media. And on today's show, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Lisa Gavalis, who was a two-time CMO, most recently working with Talbots, where she oversaw all aspects of brand and retail marketing. And before that, she was over at Express. And it is worth noting that while at Express, she did win a variety of awards, but she especially was famous for winning the Carrie Kirpin Most Likeable CMO Award from Likeable Media in 2012. So I have a very uh, fond recollection of Lisa's impact at Express and and how she was able to um, really have such a strong impact as a CMO while building the business. She really built her own personal brand as well. Um, She really speaks a lot around women in retail leadership and has a lot to say. And so I'm really looking forward to talking to her today. Uh, She's got lots of pearls of wisdom. And so I'd love to welcome her. Lisa, welcome to the show. Carrie, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. And I would love to hear, you know, I feel like one of the crazy things about social is even when you haven't spoken to somebody before, you feel like you know them because you've been tweeting with them and engaging with them. I, I've known you online since 2011, I think. And it's amazing how much you get to know people through their Facebook feeds, their Twitter feeds, even their LinkedIn uh, approach. Absolutely. I I totally agree. And I think a lot of listeners, we have a lot of listeners across the board, but a lot of young listeners who are starting their careers and and really looking to grow, uh, particularly within the marketing field. Tell me about your path to the C-suite as CMO. Like, how did you start? Give me the whole whole story of your career. The whole story. The whole story. It's a whole half hour. I love it. Um, So I'll do the abbreviated version. I did start in consulting, doing marketing strategy work. Um, mostly for retailers, and then uh, landed the job at Bloomingdale's actually doing sort of analytical work, Um, started to run planning, became a GMM, so the head of merchandise for home, and then actually had a baby and couldn't travel so much and went back into marketing, fortuitously, um, at this point 10 or 15 years ago. And at that point in time, the... um, the web business had just really started. The Internet was things people were talking about, but no one really knew much about. Social media was still to come, and um, Bloomingdale's.com didn't exist. And so I got the opportunity to start Bloomingdale's.com while I was uh, in marketing at Bloomingdale's. A couple of years later, I actually got to run all of marketing for Bloomingdale's. Wow. So that was terrific. And then um, that led to the opportunity at Express, where I, I led the marketing team there, as well as um, starting uh, what has turned into a very successful Express.com and my most recent stint at Talbots. My advice to young people who are interested in marketing is never say never and don't say no to opportunities because they may not look really linear one step to the next, 
But the more experience you can get and the more holistic your view of business is, the better opportunities you have at the end. I love that advice. I think that's great. I think it's it's really important to look at what the next steps are. A lot of times it's, uh, I think it might be Charles Sandberg who says that it's more of a jungle gym and less of a ladder, that sometimes you need to take steps to the side to actually get up to the top, which I thought was very interesting. That's a great saying. I hadn't heard that before, but it's perfect. I think it's Cheryl, but I might be totally misquoting her, but I do know it's a great thing. And I, one of my VPs at my company always says it uh, to some of her staff, and I, I think it's it's pretty awesome. So Bloomingdales.com, you, you were involved with the launch of that then. And so you really saw the dot-com and retail space happen. Yeah. I mean, it was 2001. The bubble had just burst. Nobody really knew if, it, if this thing called the internet was going to happen. Um, so it started as an e-marketing site, which is how I got it. Um, but it was pretty quickly evident that the customers wanted to buy things. So we were servicing their needs, got product up. And, um, you know, it was the beginning of what, of course, today is completely normal business. But at the time, it was a very unusual thing to be, quote unquote, competing with the stores. Um, but it, it, you know, obviously the internet is now a big part of virtually every company and it was great to be in it at the very beginning. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you feel like you knew early on that this was something and something big or did you feel like it took time? Because I often wonder that with social um, and a lot of different things, mobile marketing, you know, that it's you start early on, you have a lot of people who are hesitant about it or what's immediately what's the ROI or looking at each of those specific things. And then when you actually get there, it ends up being a very, very important part of the strategy. Did you know early about the dot com? You know, I don't think I was a early second, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I would yes. say that um, in the 90s when I was a GMM, so I was running a home business, and I got a lot of calls to have, you know, to move from Bloomingdale's to a job that was in the internet space. And I thought, I don't, I don't know what that is. I have this great job. I'm not really sure that right. that's where I want to go. But once I was in it, once, once, you know, you sort of have the whatever it is, the horse by the reins, and you realize how big and what a big opportunity it was, I quickly figured out that this was the future, and, and it's been great ever since then. I will tell you, I think social is an interesting analogy to that, too, because, you know, I was on Twitter very early, probably in 09, which I'm sure That's there are some very people early. who were on in 08, but it was, it was early yeah. for businesses. Yep. And, you know, trying to convince management that it was a really good idea that we would tweet, and, and each tweet wouldn't go through 12 versions of um, – you know, and authorization, yes, yes. that was a big deal. And now social, again, is, is sort of second nature to everybody. Absolutely. I think that it's, it's so interesting to see that as these shifts in consumer behavior, it's really about where the consumer goes, isn't it? It's like they were going to the Internet for Bloomingdale's.com, and now they're going to social sites or they're going to mobile. They're doing all their searches via mobile, and that's that's a big change. It's just are you moving quickly enough, I think, is is key always. And, you know, I think that's true for all businesses. When I was at Express and our customer was 25 years old, the key was to keep up Mm -hmm. because she and he were moving at the speed of light, taking on new social networks, really getting involved in all kinds of things. And it actually gave us a fair amount of latitude to try things because you didn't really know, to your point, which ones would stick and become huge, but you knew you had to do something. So a little trial and error, some, you know, some failing fast, um, was the key to success for us. And how do you, at an, organi- an organization that's pretty large, right, how many locations did Express have? Or do they have? 100 stores. Yeah. So if they have all so many stores, how, how do you move quickly? How can you move quickly when you're at a large organization? Do you find that challenging? 
Well, I think I was very lucky in both at Bloomingdale's and, and at Express. Um, it, was, it was sort of intrapreneurship. Mm-hmm. So these businesses were big enough and stable enough that they were, you know, very concerned about sort of the day-to-day, you know, comp store sales growth. And we were, you know, we started out as this little thing on the side. Now, clearly it's not a little thing on the side anymore, but it gave us the ability to move pretty quickly. And, and really it took a CEO who, in both cases, who sort of blessed this idea that we weren't going to know everything, but we were going to try a lot of things. And it wasn't going to be like moving the entire brand, the entire $2 billion company, but rather trying to keep up in this space. And it really gave us the latitude to do a lot of things that in a really big brand like that aren't that easy to get done. I love the concept of entrepreneurship. I think that's such a great nugget uh, to think about when you want to impact change at a a large organization. I think you're right that it does come from the top. Um, and looking at have a CEO that having a CEO that supports that, I think is key. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit when you were at Express. I know I saw a bunch of articles, and when I was doing, of course, my research on you, and and just having watched you, about a lot, you had a lot of great impact there, and you did a lot of wonderful things both on uh, Facebook and Twitter and a bunch of different areas. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how you were able to kind of not not just I mean not necessarily showing direct ROI, but how were you able to show the real results from that? Well, it's funny. ROI was a discussion that we spent a lot of time on when it comes to social, and I still advocate that ROI isn't what you should be looking at right. in social. That's not to say that there aren't some companies who are figuring out how to do business through social, so I don't want to negate that piece of the business. But in general, for a big brand who's, who's learning and growing with social, it's about engagement. As a, as a two-plus billion dollar company, you know, there are only so many times that you can get in front of a customer. So in our case at Express, if you were on our mailing list, we were in front of you once a month approximately. If you were on our email list, we were in front of you, let's say, three times a week. But if you were in social, every single day I got to be front of mind because every single day we were posting. And for me, it was the engagement, how often they would retweet it, how often they would forward it to a friend, how often they would share it, that indicated that those customers were truly engaged in the brand in a way that just because you're on my mailing list didn't mean that you were that engaged. And it was that core group of customers that we learned a lot from and allowed us to really spend the effort. And effort in social often is time. And not to say that time isn't incredibly constrained, but it's a little bit different um, asset to manage than dollars. And so we were willing to invest the time to, to do what we need to do to communicate and answer um, and that gave us the the opportunity then to invest some actual money in it. So you invested the time. Did you invest mostly um, internal resources for that, or did you use external resources as well? No, the external resources would have cost actual money. Right, internal right. Resources, um, is is where we really started. It's funny when I was um, tweeting as CMO Lisa G. Yes, which at the end you know had fifty plus I think thousand yes. um, followers. I did some analysis of when I was tweeting, and it, it told me sort of by hour, typically when I was tweeting, most of my tweets are actually happening between 9 p.m. and midnight. Right. And I thought, well, that's sort of interesting. So this is part of my quote-unquote job, kind of. I mean, it was, you know, it, was, it really was between both personal and, and work, yet I'm doing it sort of in the middle of the night. And I think that's, you know, we all sort of wanted to figure out what was next, and everyone was willing to pitch in beyond what they were normally required to do. And that is what gave us enough momentum to understand what was going on and really um, 
invest the value in, invest to get the value out of it. Yeah, so that that to me makes total sense because also if you think about at night, you probably were like you put the kids to bed, right? Or I'm not sure how old your kids were when yeah, they were there. Uh-huh. Yes, so you put the kids to bed, and you're there, and then that's a time where you can engage. I I see that a lot with brands that have people at the forefront of it. Can you can you talk to me a little bit about that? So you your Twitter handle was um now it's CMO, right? It was. What was your it Twitter was, handle at Express? It was definitely Express CMO. Express Lisa G. Express Lisa G. And now you're CMO, right? Yes, now I'm CMO Lisa G. Got it. And okay. so that's, you know, that that was actually sort of traumatic, that whole process. But yeah. but the, the beginning of being Express Lisa G was actually a very interesting story. So my boss, who was the founder of Express, um, is the one who tasked me to, you know, build the website and make this all happen. And I went to him, and it's 2009 or maybe the end of 2008, and I said, there's this thing called Twitter. Um it's a it's a very personal medium. It's not and it's not quite that much now. There's a lot of brands tweeting today, but back it used then, to be much. It was more. really about people. Yes. And I said, you know, our customers are there. They want to hear from us, um, but it, it's not the kind of thing that can have filters. It can't. I can't get it. I can't get every tweet approved. And he said, well, how will I know that we're not, you know, telling our competition what we're doing? And I said, well, you have to trust me personally because it's going to be me tweeting. And if you trust me, because I'm going to put my name on it, just like you're going to put your name on it, then, um, you know, we can have something that really works. And because of that combination, I think it was a great opportunity not to just be, you know, promoting the latest sale, but rather behind the scenes when I was at a photo shoot or, you know, the people who followed us on Twitter were really interested in in being in the know. They were real aficionados of the brand. And, and we gave them a peek behind the curtain because it was – sort of my life as a CMO, as opposed to just sort of the corporate veneer. Yep. And in fact, I mean, part of, part of how it works so well is, you know, at the very beginning we had, you know, we put it on our, on our shopping bags, you know, follow our CMO. Yes, I remember. I remember. Um, and I mean, it was great. They were very heady days. It was all new. We, we never knew at the beginning, um, which of these crazy ideas was going to work, but that one certainly, um, did great. And the truth is when you have that many followers and they have lots of questions, I needed support. So the customer service team was on it. So they would read the tweets coming in. And if it was a customer service question, you know, they would make sure that the customer got taken care of. And, and, you know, I got questions that, you know, spanned everything you can imagine. I'm going to a party. What am I going to wear to who is that model in the window? So did you answer them all yourself? I answered the non- Customer service ones. Right. Anything that's right. customer service obviously went through customer service in order to get it solved, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, I bought a pair of pants and my hem fell out or right. something. But who's the you know, model? Happened. They took care of that. Um, but no, yeah, I still, I still really answered all the way through because to be fair, I mean, Twitter is primarily a one-way medium. I, there are lots of people in my space who are talking to each other, but in, at that time, and I think, you know, the people who were following me weren't all necessarily, you know, marketing gurus. They were mostly customers. Right. Um, and so they wanted to hear. They weren't, it wasn't a daily, you know, 55,000 people talking to me. Right. And so obviously the there's a risk, right, in building it around a person versus around a company, right? Because if the person leaves or anything along those lines, then that that kind of experience is it changes, right? How did that work for you when you left? And, and would you recommend that type of strategy now? The landscape's obviously changed a little bit. Or would you keep that strategy or would you, would you change it? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I would do it again. It was pretty traumatic for me. We, um, 
So I was at Express for five years. So let's say for the first couple of years, so if 08, 09, probably through the end of 11, um, Express Lisa G was the handle. By the beginning of 2012, or maybe even the middle of 2011, we started Express Life and spent several years, two and a half years, trying to get people to move from Express Lisa G to Express Life, knowing yeah. full well that at some point in time I couldn't be the name, you know, the name right. of the brand. Very hard. Um, and by the time I left, there were slightly more Express Life followers than there were Express Lisa G followers, but the Lisa G followers didn't go away. Right, and, because the Lisa um, G followers feel like they know you, the person. Right. And, and the problem with that is I really couldn't take Express Lisa G with me. And that was hard both for me, I'm sure, for the followers. So even though we tweeted for probably 90 days, if you want to follow um, Express, go to Express Life. If you want to follow Lisa, go, I mean, it just wow. really people don't, don't move. <laughs> and so you couldn't, you, it's not like you got to change the handle and you kept it, right? They had to keep it. Right. Mm, that must have been very, very hard. Traumatic. Yeah, for sure. traumatic because you were so <laughs> entrenched in the community and looking at that, that that's very, very interesting. So for brand marketers um, who are building a presence online for a brand, do you think it's very important for them to build their own presence as well if that's what they want to do? I think so. I think if you're going to, if it's going to be personally about you and your life, um, whether it's, you know, your life as an executive or your life personally, I do think those two things are different, but even your life as an executive, you, I think you have to be very careful. And I think most people now are, they say, you know, my tweets are my own and that yes. hopefully protects them. Um, but you know, but if you had to do it again, four years smarter now, <laughs> if you had to do it again, would you do it again though? Back then? Yes. Right. Back then, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was great. Was... It was great because I don't. I don't think that at the time when Express Lisa G was tweeting, and you know, the Gap and Banana and other competitors who were who were tweeting as companies, we were growing in a very different way than they were. So it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Right. And so when you were growing and and getting to the C level at these organizations, did you feel? Like you had to behave any differently because you were a woman or did you never really think of it that way? Were you just proceeding as a person or did you feel like you had to, to really lean in a la Cheryl or any of those different things? Like, did you feel like you had to approach things differently? So, I mean, interestingly, I used to always say that the people before me were the ones who really had to work the hardest. Um, you know, the women who were successful a generation before me mm -hmm. really we're working in a man's world. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the less I worried about whether or not I was a man or woman, the better I did. And I, I would say that it was, it was beneficial in the early years just to be tough, right? Tough right. as the guys. Right. Um, you know, I'm a little older and a little wiser now, <laughs> and I think what's happening um, means to me that we need to be, we need to take better care of our team. And, and we need to really provide mentorship to young women who are coming up um, and, and set good examples. And I think that's not always been the case. And I do think that today, more than ever, we actually need to be really clear about helping, you know, helping each other. About helping each other as women, you're saying? Yes. Yes, for sure. I agree. I, I definitely agree. Do you think that when you're looking at mentorship and you're looking at how to help young women grow in their careers? Do you think that mentors 
are people should they seek out mentors? Are you looking to spot young talent? Like how do you how do you find that relationship works best? Hopefully all of the above. Yeah. Um, I did have somebody ask me recently that they um you know what what mentors did we did I have? Um and you know, how did I find them? And I would say and this is this is true, I believe that we as women owe other women the opportunity to be a great mentor to them, but I also don't want to narrow the field of yes. potential mentors to just women. Yes. Right? So if I'm an up-and-coming woman, I want to be able to look at everybody on the planet and say, you could be a great mentor for me. Let's talk um, together. But I do, I do find that um, mentoring other people comes in a both formal and informal way, and mm-hmm. it comes from either a casual conversation at lunch or somebody who I've interviewed and either did or didn't hire um, and people who've, you know, seeked me out and said, you know, I'd like to understand more about your career and how you got there. And um, I think it, it is, it is both a formal and informal process. I've been way back in the day when I was a consultant, I worked for Pricewaterhouse and they had an official mentoring program, which was terrific because there was always somebody there that you could talk to who wasn't your boss, who maybe wasn't even on your team, but who you could really try and understand what was going on in the business better. And I think it, it helped all of us. Yes, I think any kind of formal program is ideal. It's, it's so hard to find sometimes when you look at companies, like how many of them are truly invested in mentoring, because I think it's, it's really key. I, all the women I speak to who listen to the podcast, they're real, that's really what they're looking for, is somebody to help advise them and help, help give them feedback on their career, which I think, I think is great. It's part of the, the point of the podcast, actually, which is great. So you speak a lot uh, on retail and on women in leadership. In terms of retail, tell me about where you think the, the, con- the concept of retail is going. As people are shifting to more online, um, what can companies do uh, to keep their brick and mortar going? Or is their brick and mortar not a long-term plan? What do you think will happen here with retail? Well, so I think we've hit the tipping point, which is kind of fun because, you know, when I started out, as I said, in, in digital, it was brand spanking new. And it, it got to the point where last year everybody was concerned that the malls were going to close and the stores were going. And, and still there are plenty of stories of stores closing. But I think we've hit a point where customers and business owners have realized that actually the store is your best competitive edge against some of these pure plays. Because yeah. if you do it right – the store experience is the quintessential brand experience. Now, if you do it badly, then you're probably going to close those stores because right. if you have a, you know, a low service, you know, not very engaged um, team on the floor, then the customers don't want to come back either. But if you do it right, I believe that the best chance of survival of the multi-channel players is to really refocus their efforts on stores. And it's been a long time since people have been talking about that, but I do think now you're starting to see it again. I hope so, because the stores are really such an experience, which is very different from just the online experience. You know, actually going to a store, trying things on, having that that sort of in-the-moment experience is still very valuable, at least to me as a, as a shopper. What Absolutely. Do I... But when you have that experience, you want to have a great sales associate right. who's helping you, and but that means investing, and there's some catching up to do. I mean, there was there was a fair amount of time when retailers weren't investing enough in their stores, and I think you're about to see that turnaround. True story, Lisa. I was an Express associate 
in college. You were. I, I was, love it. and I was really, really good. And they <laughs> never—they actually, this is a funny story—they never put me at the cashier. They always put me on the floor because I was so good at making people feel very comfortable in their choices and like making them feel really good about what they were wearing. And so they always had me on the floor. It's that's true. terrific. Mm-hmm. Yay. And little... That's what you need, right? Because here's the thing. I mean, to your point, online commerce is easy, yep. right? You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to like, try it on. Whatever it is, you sort of click a couple buttons and you have something purchased. But to tell that you're going to love it requires a little more engagement than that. And I think that's what the stores hopefully um, will continue to grow towards. And, and some are clearly already there. But I think that, you know, the brand experience has to be, well, it doesn't have to be, but I would say that most customers want it to be a, a place in addition to just something on their screen. For sure. I think it, the concept of retail as a destination is something that's always been very attractive, I think, to shoppers, as, as even though, yes, we all want to do things online, even though we're shopping through mobile, even though we're doing all of that, I think if you have a good experience, nothing can really top that. And I think it's sort of funny, you know, there's been a bunch of research recently that say millennials and younger customers, they actually want to shop in stores. And I think that everyone assumed that that wouldn't happen. Right. The next generation would never want to go to a store. And it just isn't true. It's not. It's not, especially with clothes and fit. I mean, think about how many pairs of jeans you try on, right? What's that? There's some kind of crazy stat of how many how many pairs of jeans a woman tries on before she feels really comfortable in that, that experience. And I think... It's it's hard to shop and feel like you can shop online and, and have it sent to you. I mean, the convenience is there, and there's a lot of great things around it. But I do think we shouldn't forget the in-store experience. So tell me tell me about you, – you obviously have been in retail and using social for quite some time now. You're really early into the, into the wave. Tell me which networks you see having the most impact for retail. Well, it's funny because I actually think um, some of the ones that I haven't had much of an opportunity to work with are, are the future. And I think it's the same idea of why the store is important because as brands get more important, pictures get more important. Yes. And so I think, you know, things that didn't exist when I started with Twitter, like Instagram and Tumblr and Pinterest are all pieces and parts of what is the next wave of social and how you combine those two. I mean, clearly everyone's trying to figure that out, right? Twitter's trying to figure out how they get pictures to be part of theirs. And I'm right. sure that Instagram's trying to figure out how to get, you know, links to retailers. I mean, it's, it's a whole um, confluence of technology, but I do think imagery is going to become more and more important um, as, as the commerce piece, the click, you know, the one click becomes really common really easy. And the differentiator has to be the brand. Yes, for sure. There was actually an article that came out today talking about how the initial success from the Instagram advertisers, which are all fashion, uh, is tremendous. And I think it's because it's how the brand is presented visually, I think is key. And and Pinterest, I know for a lot of clients we have that are in the fashion space, it's just, it's it's an amazing conversion rate for that. It's Those are two really great networks, I think, that I've seen to do that. So did you not have get to have the experience working with some of those? Well, we literally had just gone into Instagram as I was leaving Express. Yeah. Um, and they've, they've actually done a pretty good job with it. Um, but Pinterest, we were still trying to figure out. Um, it's the, it reminds me of the early days of the web. When I used to say it really is a web, you can get completely obsessed and 
you know, take your whole day, your whole day being lost. And so that's actually what happened to us at the beginning of Pinterest. We'd send, you know, we'd give some creative director a um, task to, to pin a board on whatever trend we thought was interesting. And four hours later, and they were halfway through the board, and I was like, w- w- wait, what are, you, what are you doing? Right? Because we knew Pinterest couldn't be, like, here are the five shirts that represent the white shirt trend. It can't. It had yeah. to be something beautiful and spectacular about white. Well, you give a creative person something as sort of amorphous as this idea of white, and it's spectacular, but the bandwidth that it re- was requiring, so we were really just just refining the idea behind Pinterest when I was leaving Express. And especially because you're talking about earlier, you talked about moving quickly and the need to move quickly, and that the your target would be done with with something by the time you know moments after you'd launch it. Like it's really you have to be really really quick and fast. I think that's that's definitely key. Um, and yes, I I totally get that on the um, on Pinterest and how you, you the desire to make things beautiful can slow the process so much. And so it's how it's waiting beauty with speed and and all of it so it can be very challenging very but at very, the end it's beautiful it is it's always beautiful and i think a pinterest is a, is a ton of fun and i think for fashion brands and in general we're seeing that quite a bit so do you have any advice for aspiring young marketers who are looking to um, get into marketing either on the retail side or in social media in general things what's what skill sets are really important well, I think the ability to try things without being too concerned that you have 100% of the facts. So there's, there's this idea of speed. It's not the same as the shiny penny, right? Every shiny object I see I want to go after. But it is this idea that if you have either a pretty good gut about it or you have some you know, percentage of data that looks like it's headed in the right direction, to try it, fail fast if you need to, um, Clearly, we all need batting averages. You can't fail all the time. But it is really this idea that this space is so new and changing so fast that to expect perfection will keep you from getting done what you can otherwise get done. That's great. And I think I think the speed and moving forward and being unafraid to fail is okay. I think it's something that that we have to teach ourselves constantly is that that fear of failure and the and where our confidence can get us down, you know, really lack of confidence rather is something that can be very very challenging. Did you ever have an experience where you went into a network and then were had to like left it, found that it didn't work for you that well? Oh, I have a really good story. Oh, good, um, good, good. So, so uh I've sort of lost track of what year was what, but Facebook commerce was going to be the next big thing. Yes. The internet was there, mobile was there, and now Facebook commerce was the next big thing. So every conference I went to, there were dozens of vendors who were explaining how they could get us up on Facebook. Yes. All of the solutions included manually monitoring your inventory, which meant I couldn't probably put up the whole assortment, and I wouldn't necessarily be accurate in inventory count. Now, all of this sounded terrible because one of the things – about the internet is that you have to be right. right. You have to be, like, if somebody says they're buying something, you actually have to have it to send to them. So, so all these manual interventions weren't going to work for me. We were too big. We couldn't make that happen. I had this amazing team of um, developers, and they created this hack that basically took our mobile site, imaged it into Facebook, and suddenly, we, with a flip of a switch, we had Facebook commerce. 100% of our products completely accurate inventory. Wow. Um, 
so big, so good that it landed us on the front page of USA Today. Okay. Now, the reason that landing on the front page of USA Today was good is not just because that was amazing and I was already blown away by the concept. It was that there was no Facebook commerce to be had. <laughs> there yeah. was no business for us on Facebook. If customers wanted to buy things from Express, they bought it in the store, they bought it online, they bought it on mobile, they weren't buying it on Facebook. And right. it took us, you know, a fair amount of effort, not a huge amount of effort, but a fair amount of effort. Um, and we got tons of press for it. And at the end of the day, there was <laughs> no one was buying. Nobody was buying. But you know what? I use that as an example all the time to my team about, you know, figuring out what to do next isn't always about figuring out exactly how it's going to work. For us, being on the front page of USA Today was huge yeah. publicity. Yep. So at the end of the day, it was great. It was first it mover advantage, even if it didn't achieve what the original intention was. Exactly right. Exactly right. So there, was, there were plenty of times when we tried things, decided, okay, well, that's not really worth any more effort. Let's keep going. That's brilliant. I love that story. That's a good, that is really, really a great one. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. You are truly one of the All the Social Ladies ladies, and we're happy to have you here. And uh, we look forward to watching your next move and, and wherever you're headed next. We are looking forward to watching you succeed. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Yay. Thanks, Lisa. You've been listening to All the Social Ladies with Carrie Kerfin. CEO of Likeable Media. You can follow Carrie on Twitter, at Carrie Kirpin. To get current social media insights and great tips, sign up for Carrie's weekly newsletter by emailing newsletter at likeable.com.